And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Oh, they've deceived Liverpool here. And it's Havertz with the chip. And over the top. How many more chances are Arsenal going to pass up? Welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast for the first time in 2024. It's great to have you with us. And if it's for the first time... This seems like a good episode for a refresher. This year, just like every year since 2019, we're going to be meeting up each week to talk football and specifically about things of a tactical, technical or analytical nature, sometimes all three. I'm Ali Maxwell and I've got a lot of curiosity about how elite level football is played, why it evolves in the way that it does. And in particular, I love learning about ways in which received wisdom in football can be wrong or can be turned on its head. Luckily for me and for you, my friends at The Athletic are well-placed to quench my curiosity. Michael Cox is with us, the tactics guy. Hi, Ali. <laughs> Mark Carey, the data guy. Hi, Ali. And Liam Tharm, the technical guy. <laughs> Does Hello, that Ali. work? I, I thought you were going to go data and tactics guy or just the guy. Uh, I felt the guy. the guy. I felt if I called you either the guy or the data and tactics guy, yeah. it would put you on a pedestal above these okay. two. I'm definitely not above that. Now, over the years on the podcast, there have been a couple of positions or roles on the pitch that we've talked about more so than others. And it feels like fullbacks have probably been our number one positional topic of conversation over the last couple of years. But maybe there'll be a new belt holder this year. We're going to start. 2024, talking about strikers, talking about number nines in the Premier League. And first, by zooming in on Arsenal Football Club, Mark, you've written about Arsenal this week. They have won just one of their last seven in all competitions and you felt compelled to write specifically about their finishing slump. I did, yeah. I went to the Arsenal-Liverpool game uh, at the weekend just gone in the FA Cup and the main narrative that a lot of writers were, were saying that it was that Arsenal's wastefulness in, in front of goal was that that they need to go into the January market and sign a clinical striker. And I sort of took umbrage with it because it just felt like it was far more nuanced than that. And just simply buying a, a striker of any kind is not the, the only fix. And I guess I, I wanted to identify a lot of the more sustainable things that they were doing well that are more predictive of future success in front of goals. So their overall chance creation, a really key part of their their out of possession work has been that, yes, they have a really strong defensive foundation, but that is a really good attacking method of winning the ball high up and creating really lucrative opportunities as a consequence, as they did at the weekend where they should have scored. But for the so the final pass rather than the actual finish as well. So there's sort of looking more at the nuances of that. And the idea that there's previous research that shows that it, when we're talking about clinical finishing, analysis has shown that the effect of a player's finishing skill, yes, it does exist, but it's very small compared to the more important, more sustainable factors like 
the quality of the shot, whether that's the, the location, the angle, whatever it is, XG, basically, mm -hmm. the, the skill itself is, is very, very small unless we're talking about the, the messies of this world almost exclusively. <laughs> Therefore, getting a, a clinical striker with all of the nuance that we're talking about wouldn't simply be the answer there. It's all the stuff around it. And we need to have that conversation rather than just what would be considered maybe a quick fix. Sounds like a good conversation <laughs> to have. I mean, Liam, with Arsenal at the moment, with one win in seven games in all competitions, has it been more an issue of individual execution at both ends of the pitch, not just up front? Or is there anything highly concerning in terms of the system at the moment? I think the difficulty with the system is that they're one of the least varied teams, one of the most predictable teams, for, for better or for worse. And Arteta has coached a really, really good plan A now. It took him time. They they moved away from the 3-4-3 that he had early on and, and was clear that he wanted to play a 4-3-3. And it, it's the same thing that, that City have, that Pep says sort of in, in most games where because you're going to play such a clear high positional system and, and now you want to be so tight defensively and so physical that it's going to be really hard for you to to play against teams because teams are going to sit off you. That is a, a hallmark of success. That means you're, you're a good enough side, but you then get into these not so fun game states to watch where you're just basically trying to break down a, a mid or a low block the whole time. And then you start to say, okay, well, we need to either change or really refine the patterns. You have to have a really high level of quality in what you do just to make those passes work because there's less space. There's obviously the, the game state stuff, which Arteta has referenced where they're not you know, going ahead in games as early on. And there's probably a fair comment about what actually is their sort of true level or what's their average? Because for a period of time and for a couple of seasons under Arteta, they were what, eighth or, or sort of ninth. So they were they were pushing and developing and sure, they, they overhauled the squad. Um, they had a really excellent first half of the season last season, but that can't be their barometer for success because otherwise you're you're going to really struggle to achieve that most of the time and constantly feel like you're, you're in a state of failure. Um, so I think that... <sighs> You have to be conscious of where you put the bar for how for how good or bad you can be. And I also wonder if this sort of striker really exists of the one that will score all these goals and do everything else. The only one I can truly think of that does that is is Harry Kane. And um, to have the creativity as well, the pressing, the the work rate, and the availability. When you look at the amount of games Arsenal are going to play, um, you've kind of got that delineation now between the the Jesus or the Firmino type role, where you've got more out of possession or more in terms of link play, and then the the Aguero, the Lewandowski will get you goals and and be a pure goal scorer. There's obviously a lot of advanced metrics you can use these days to demonstrate how the strike has evolved and goals come from different places. But something that really blew my mind recently was just a comment I heard someone say, and this was an Arsenal fan who's about 15 years younger than me, who said, what Arsenal really need is a 15-goal-a-season striker. Mm. And I've, I've never heard it be as low as 15. <laughs> yeah, I reckon you could try it over the years. It's gone 30, 25, 20. We're now at the 50. I think a 15 is like Frank Lampard. Yeah. You know, I don't think of that as what we need from a striker. Mm. Uh, so if anyone here is lower than 15, please get in touch. Well, the next step, the generation below that will be saying, we need someone who'll be a, a 25 goal contributions a season man g plus g a, a. <laughs> or ideally n p g plus x a <laughs> i'm here for that discussion yeah that's that's where we're moving that is interesting i mean when a team's results aren't satisfactory over a short or a longer period it is entirely natural for fans to think of what the problems and solutions might be. It's also, to a certain extent, the job of the media to also identify issues and present solutions. That's where things like, we need a better striker in January come from. That's where things like Arteta's 
style is too predictable. That's where these things come from, Michael. Just in terms of Arsenal right now, is there anything specific that you would raise as being the key issue in the last month? Well, I quite liked, I don't know whether you saw, but Jamie Carragher did a good piece of analysis on Monday Night Football where he looked at how Arsenal were playing. And he pointed out that the attacking players, particularly Martinelli and Saka, they were always just scoring like their classic goals. So Martinelli's got kind of going behind and finish one-on-one or from a tight angle. Saka cuts inside from the right and scores. They were doing those things, but there weren't any kind of more sporadic improvised goals. And I think there probably is something in that. I do think Arsenal, I mean, they were fantastic last season, almost out of nowhere when they got to that level where it looked like they could win the title. But they do play, it's quite constrained roles, I think, for a lot of the players. I know Odegaard's playing slightly deeper. His role's changed a bit. But I do wonder whether Arsenal are just lacking a bit of free-flowing, kind of unpredictable play in the final third. I thought, if you can find it on... Where would you find it? YouTube. <laughs> if you can find it on the internet, I'd recommend uh, that. I think it was the Monday night before last. People uh, 15 years younger than you'll be watching it on TikTok. Yeah, probably true, yeah. I feel compelled to point out that Arsenal had a 20-plus goal a season striker in Fuller and Balogun that they chose to let go in the summer that they could have integrated, sure, having played in a different style system. But they've had these types of players. You've previously had Aubameyang and, and Lacazette, and there's clearly a profile that, that Arteta wants, and you go fine because for the whole team to play a certain way, we might have to compromise on on something somewhere. And the difficulty is with wingers and having such good wingers which of course was the reason why Jesus worked so well of having that player that can link link between them. Um, teams now just, they you can double up in wide areas. It's quite, there's quite a straightforward way to defend. It doesn't need a hugely ridiculous scheme or, you know, a really phenomenal sort of pressing trap. Um, we've seen sort of Wolves do it. They faced a lot of back fives. They went to Brentford and, and teams sat off them. I did a piece that's on site uh, just over a month ago now. So the, the stats might be a little bit out of date, but when you look at the, the PPDA from opponents against Arsenal, um, it was around 15 passes last season before they made a defensive action. That was up to over 18 this season. So even more passive, a lot more settled possession. And Saka and Martinelli were phenomenal at the start of last season. In the first 30 games of the Premier League, at least one of them scored or assisted in 25 of those. And that just hasn't been the same this season. And when your key players then start dropping off, you then start going, oh God, we've got used to that. We've now expected that. And then you need to start compensating from elsewhere. I mean, yeah, they've had to all adapt because, as you say, they've almost got a bit of a target on their back because they've done so well last season. So I think there's there's an element of that. But I think it is still worth reminding ourselves of how strong Arsenal are defensively such that they don't need to be as attackingly potent as they were last season because they've got that that really strong defensive foundation to, to go from and I looked at their expected goals and sorry expected goals conceded and they are the best in the league in that regard so if you were to compare like for like of the the output from individual players this season compared to last season I do think it has to be taken in the context of almost how many goals they they need to score within a certain game. It might be that they need to, and they're okay to score fewer because, you know, they're they're having a clean sheet in every game. So Mm. that context, I think, is is key. The second thing I'd say is that I don't know whether this is just maybe my eye. I've got no numbers to back this up, but I think it's quite interesting to see Arsenal have got Martin Odegaard, Kai Havertz, Bukayo Saka, often as part of the, the front five, shall we say. There's not too many sides in the Premier League who have so many left-footed players. And on the weekend, there was a few occasions, and I included it in the piece, where a right-footer would have played a pass that would have kind of gone more into the path of the the receiver, such that they would have maybe been through on goal or something. And it just the passing angle from so many left-footers sometimes meant that it was more to feet or slightly behind. And then that chance doesn't end up in a shot, but 
that opportunity has, has broken down. So I don't know whether there's anything in that as well that with the introduction of Kai Havertz this season, um, there's just slight breaking down of play earlier in the sequence chain. Um, that may not be the case. That might just be my eye, but I just thought it was something to flag. Given that those players who often are receiving the ball in the right half of the pitch are naturally wanting to come back inside, I wonder if a another solution to put forward would be to try and find a right back who can offer yeah. a little more sort of credible attacking threat as a as an overlapping right back, which for all of, of Benjamin White's qualities, I, I don't necessarily see that with him. Yeah, he does it on occasion. There was a game against Tottenham last year at the Emirates where Arsenal went from attacking with a front five against a back five and then White suddenly came on the overlap and, and was really effective. So he just seems slightly out of form to me. don't know whether that's a fitness thing or whatever. But... Broadly, as the opposition, you'd be pleased to see the ball cycled out to, to White overlapping, running onto it, wouldn't you? Whereas clearly Trent Alexander-Arnold mm. has such quality that it's unfair to compare. But someone who would actually strike some fear into the opposition and might give them something else to think about could be an, an interesting option for Arsenal. I, I also think there's an extent to which we're trying to defend the players playing number nine for Arsenal. Now that's been Havertz, that's been Gabriel Jesus, that's been at times Eddie and Ketia, and all of them I think individually have come in for some scrutiny when playing that role. But Arsenal haven't been getting many goals from other sources either, uh, particularly from the wide forwards. Saka... Uh, Martinelli and Odegaard, I think between them have scored five league goals uh, since the start of October. So that's coming up to three and a half months now. A good attack scores goals and in the modern game gets goals from a lot of different sources rather than just one number nine. You know, Manchester City aren't amazing because Haaland scored so many goals last season. Broadly, they scored a similar amount of goals the year before without a striker without one player scoring such a big proportion. So uh, I do feel like there's probably something to be said for if we're going to be scrutinising players for not scoring at the level that you'd expect for a, a title contender. Probably fair to look at Saka, Odegaard, Martinelli as well. Yeah, I mean, Michael mentioned uh, Jamie Carragher before. I saw something from him earlier this season. He made a really good point that, talking about Liverpool, that Roberto Firmino didn't score for Liverpool at Anfield at all in the title-winning season of 2019-20. <laughs> but the point being was that he had Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah, who was the ones who were, who were scoring goals and, and chipping in so well. So that, my favourite word, that alchemy of the front three was was far stronger um, rather than for Arsenal, it doesn't feel to quite be the same in terms of that link-up across the board. And yeah, Martinelli, especially from the left-hand side, his expected goals per 90 or, or in general is is way down on last season but it's worth noting that he did overperform last mm. season and he's underperforming this season so maybe Martinelli is kind of representative of, of Arsenal in general that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle Okay Mark to finish off the Arsenal chat can you say with confidence that as long as chance creation numbers are good Arsenal will get back to a good goal scoring level even with no personnel changes in January with confidence was the bit that kind of threw me there because I, I, I don't know. Um, but I do think that I'm not going to be all hashtag trust the process, but it does feel that, you know, if you do create as many chances as Arsenal have in recent weeks, probably aside from the Fulham game, that was quite a, a bad performance. But if anyone hasn't seen the chances that they created against Liverpool at the weekend, go and see them because there's a few that you, even numbers aside, you would think you, you would expect the team to score from there. So, it is very much that let's remind ourselves that this is a very, very good side who have really strong defensive foundations, who press really high from the front and create 
really good goal scoring opportunities. Yes, they need to sharpen up maybe a little bit here and there. But the, the other point that I made in the piece was that when you're against so many elite sides, not least Liverpool and Manchester City fighting for the league, a tiny deviation also is kind of magnified because you One cannot afford to make a mistake. One bad week can flip a whole season. Yeah. Finishing slumps are damaging, aren't they? That exactly. piece that did stand out from your piece. I think it's worth as well pointing out that a lot of things we're now praising Arsenal for in terms of improving defensively and, and more overall as a team are the same praise we gave City last season and was yeah. a big part of their European run. They've had PSV come to the Emirates uh, when Lons have come to the Emirates and both actually tried to, to play against Arsenal and not set off. They scored 10 goals in those two games. They've, they've cruised through their, their Champions League group um, and obviously having to balance that at that level for the first time in, in an awfully long time with, with a fairly young squad. So their attack isn't like as disastrous as some people make it out to be. Their, their XG's top five. I think they're, they're seventh in the league for, for goals scored and you put them one behind Brighton who people tend to say score all the time. Um, and they're, they're third for goal difference only behind Liverpool and Manchester City. So it's not, it, I don't think it's particularly disastrous. It could be a little bit better, but when you look at how good they are defensively, um, it currently is doing a lot to compensate for that and that's fine but I think people just like their teams to win by scoring more than conceding fewer for the most part so that's that's where the uh, the disappointment comes in and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free hey frank a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct tv what's the little birdie was it jimmy the sparrow it's a figure of speech point is you can stream direct tv over the internet now oh sure next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people right <laughs> you mean airplanes stream direct tv without a satellite dish call 1-800-DIRECT-TV terms or restrictions apply Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. For most of us, January means New Year's resolutions. But for the footballing world, January means one thing, transfers. There's a lot going on, and to stay on top of every move that matters, you need the Athletic Football Podcast. They were prioritising somebody like Mason Mount. Five days a week, we'll help you cut through the noise with the most reliable reporters in the industry. David Ornstein, Adam Crafton, Laurie Whitwell, and many more will not only tell you what the deal is, but how it happened too. So make sure you don't miss a single transfer beat in January with the Athletic Football Podcast. Listen for free wherever you get your shows and hit follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. So part of our discussion today is about strikers, about how important it is that they are clinical, that they score goals. Michael, partly this comes from the fact that it feels to me that elite managers, maybe even managers at most professional levels, are now more focused than ever on what their number nine does in all aspects of the game outside of shooting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think it's the same for all positions, really. We could we could say the same about goalkeepers. You know, less than ever, it's about shot stopping and more than ever, it's about their distribution. I mean, that's that's the way the game has gone. And, you know, positions tend to react to each other if, 
you know, suddenly there's a wave of really good ball playing centre backs, then you need strikers who can close them down. Um, and if you have strikers who can close them down, you need centre backs who are even more comfortable in possession. So, yeah, I think that's been always the general trend of football, well, certainly over the last few decades, the, the move towards all rounders rather than specialists. Yeah, a huge part with the number nine's game now is is to lead the press and to you know recognize the triggers to and okay it looks quite straightforward all the time because they are just sort of running and at times in a straight line or, or a curved line but um that takes a lot a lot of fitness um a lot of repeated sprint ability it's not an easy thing to do all the time particularly at, at high intensities that, that i promise you that's a word repeated sprint ability sprint um, sprint i can't even say it sprint ability <laughs> repeated sprint not not one sorry so three words repeated Sprint ability. Oh, no, yeah. No. Yeah. I thought it was like bounce back ability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to my knowledge anyway. And look, Arsenal are one of the, the best pressing teams. I had a quick look there. They're top for high turnovers in, in the league. And it's been a huge strength of theirs. In fact, I think one of the ironic points was when they lost to um, City in the Cup last season, Arteta subbed holding at half time for Saliba. And it was one of the games where we'd actually seen Saliba not start. And the only reason that City went so long and actually made holding suffer against Haaland sort of airily and physically was because they were pressing so high so tight and so well so then it becomes a case of well you're really good at this one part which ends up costing you in another area of the pitch which I appreciate I'm digressing there a little bit but yeah it's become really important and actually it's a big part of why they're so good defensively because you can press so well to start with and you're not having to do as much settled um, defending further down the pitch and that's how they get the ball back more because Arteta wants possession. So there's been this this trade-off Maybe I'm wrong, Michael, but when I, when I think of the Premier League in the 90s and the strikers that played in the Premier League in the 90s, their skills were scoring goals inside the box, finishers, good headers of the ball. And albeit I wasn't watching games with much of an analytic or tactical brain in my, in my single figure years, but I don't feel like they were being asked to do a lot of the things that the modern striker is being asked to do. Yeah, I think there was more of a division of responsibilities and there was more acceptance from the defensive players that, yeah, their job is to to go and attack and when they lose the ball, fine, if they want to conserve their energy, that's not really in the game anymore. I mean, I think it's interesting. We're, we're talking about strikers. I mean, a lot of the actual, the players who, their skill set, I would still consider strikers often aren't playing as strikers. I mean, someone like Martinelli, Arteta's been really clear. He doesn't see Martinelli playing through the middle. For a lot of people, that would be an obvious option. You know, if you don't have a clinical striker, move him inside. But he sees his skills as going towards goal and he thinks he's got to start from wide, which we've kind of grown to accept. I mean, go back to Barcelona with Guardiola, where Henri and Eto were often the wide players. Well, certainly at the end of the season, Messi was through the middle. But actually, it's not just the kind of quick direct players. It's even players like... Liverpool, when Divock Origi actually started games, usually they moved Mane inside because he was the link man and Origi would start from wide. And to a certain extent, Darwin Nunes, it's been the same. So I would still call them strikers, but often they aren't actually starting ever as the number nine, but they have, I would say, the the attributes and the physicality of, of a number nine. One thing I'm really interested in is to what extent can we measure the value of things like good movement outside the box that creates space for your teammates and turns attacks into more dangerous attacks or hold up play or even quality in the press, quality out of possession. And are we sure that it is worth more to a team and to a team's results than a- an ability to stick the ball in the net within the box? It's, yeah, difficult one to, to answer. I suppose the 
The second half of that very much depends on how strong your potentially wide players are. Like I mentioned before with the Roberto Firmino example with Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, that's okay in the role that he plays when you know that you've got a prolific, two prolific goal scorers either side. With this Arsenal example, maybe not quite as much, but can you measure it? with great difficulty but there's more and more from an analytics perspective that's that's doing that with more access to physical data and off-ball data um it makes me think of some some really good work done by david sumter who's a brilliant mathematician um written some really interesting books and very prominent in the football analytics uh sphere and a couple of years ago he he wrote a really interesting piece that that looked at roberto firmino and the value of his he, he titled them disruptive off-ball runs and he gave a really good example that was it was quite simple in the way that it was shown it didn't actually lead to a goal but it was a really neat example against Everton that Firmino just kind of drifted across the the back four had no kind of agenda in actually receiving the the pass but opened up so much space and showed you know with the statistics how much space that opened up for Sadio Mane to receive it in sort of in and around the uh, the D of the penalty area and it, it really gave a way to quantify just how much value you can you can offer with those sort of yeah as you say the the good movement and then how much the others the other players within your side can can benefit from it so um yeah it's starting to grow in terms of a way to objectively measure that i i think as well and this isn't to do with data at all but it's amazing how often Firmino is the answer when centre-backs are asked who was your most difficult opponent. I've seen Thiago Silva say it. I've seen Nathan Ake say it. I've seen Tamori say it. Really? And I think there's another centre-back. And also Oli Gunnar Solskjaer said that when he was setting up a team, Firmino was the one he found most difficult to plan for as well. I mean, it's not a surprise. I love, I mean, I genuinely miss him. Yeah. I miss him being in the Premier League. But it is incredible because so many, I mean, if I was a centre-back, I'd be really scared of playing against the really big physical players. But, the, at that level, it's the intelligent movement that, that kills teams. It brings you back to a really good piece that, that Mark did. I'm not, not sure when, um, but about... <laughs> Something about that that made me like, I don't know when he did yeah. this. He didn't normally write Once upon pieces. a time. Um, measuring goals and the, the value you get, I think in relation to points and like game-winning goals, etc. Yeah. Um, trying to offer a little bit more insight as to, yeah, who adds more value or, or relative to their teams um, rather than just saying X number of goals is good or enough. Um, the idea that, you know, you could score, I don't know, only 10 goals in a season, but if you get 10 match winning goals, then you've, you've earned an awful lot of points with that. Versus who's a flat track bully. Precisely, yeah. Or who's just sort of adding gloss on a, a 4 or 5 nil win. Um, and from memory, I think Richarlison came out as like the, the top player in it. Mm -hmm. And it was just an interesting breakdown to say, okay, not all goals are sort of equal um, and sort of say it's not just the number itself that you want to be bothered about. Okay, who are they coming against? What sort of type of goals are you scoring? How sort of balanced are they? Like with Arsenal, are you scoring them in a really specific way from certain types of players? I think one of the, the biggest things I've seen this season, um, a player who's, I mean, he's not been a, as prolific a scorer, but is getting us now is Dominic Solanke. And he's looked really, really good because he's been really, really versatile. And I know Ali Ulu more in the championship. Um, but that was my sort of, my worry for him when he first stepped back up to the Premier League was he didn't really have what looked like to me like a, a trademark way of scoring. There wasn't the way of, okay, there's a, a Mitrovic where you know you can cross to him and you'll get some goals from that. Um, you know, there wasn't a, he's always going to get end of cutbacks or, or play in different ways. But he's now gone into a system, ironically enough, where his primary role really now is, is to press really high, is to lead the press for Bournemouth and has probably got better attackers around him now as well. But they started to score an awful, awfully high number of goals and, and Tom Tom Harris um, did a really good piece on site about 
the hat trick he got at Nottingham Forest and, you know, not a player that often scores headers, scored two really good headers in that. So I think more than ever now as a striker to score goals, you've, you've got to be at least one of, ideally both, have a real sort of trademark way that you tend to score, a, a reliable way, and then be as versatile as possible. I think one final thing on the, the value of a goal, bringing it back to, to Arsenal, is that I feel like their, their wastefulness in front of goal that is the, the main narrative at the moment is exacerbated by the fact that they are wasteful at a time when it's either early on in the game and the game is being drawn or maybe they're down in, in recent weeks. But it's not only that they're missing, it's that it feels more salient because they're missing at crucial moments. Mm. That's where I think it's really getting highlighted in recent weeks. Chelsea are often held up as an example of a team that don't score enough or are lacking that goal scoring number nine. But Drogba is a great example of the sort of player I think that if he was playing for Chelsea now as he was then, um, would get sort of this exact same criticism. So his two best seasons for, for Chelsea in the Premier League were, were 20 goals in 06-07 and then 29-2009-2010. Between that had a season of eight goals and a season of five goals. And sure, his minutes were limited in that. I can't remember if that's injury or um, anything sort of selection related. But they're some of the numbers that the players are putting up now and being told that that's nowhere near good enough. The goals per game rate is, is way up in the Premier League and what it's been in, in recent seasons. And we're seeing a lot of games now between the big six where they're getting really open and really stretched. The, uh, was it the Arsenal-Liverpool game at the uh, Anfield where there was a point in the second half it was just going back and forth and there's that chance where Trent gets in and hits the bar mm. and um, just sort of swinging between ultra control and then absolute chaos. And I guess that's now leading to more goals being scored. And if more goals are being scored, then you're going to expect there to be more players that are scoring high. So you can always look somewhere and go, they've got that better than we do. Yeah, Drogba got that his first couple of seasons when Chelsea won the league. He was criticised a lot for his lack of goals. And when you go through it, there were three or four Chelsea managers in a row who kind of tried to build without Drogba. You know, they wanted someone who was more of a link player, whether it was Anelka, because Torres came in and didn't do very well. But Drogba was a funny player. I mean, he always just did it on big moments. You know, his, his record in finals was great. But yeah, week in, week out, his record wasn't that great in the Premier League, really. I think his goal-scoring number is about the same as Darren Bent's. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. One thing I think is really interesting is the physical profile of a Premier League number nine, I think, has become quite uniform. And I don't know how best to explain this. There's basically like a certain... There are certain physical boxes that a Premier League striker essentially has to tick now, otherwise they, they will not make it starting games as a number nine at Premier League level. What's interesting to me is there's much less crossing and number nines heading the ball in, rising above centre-backs to head home these days. So I don't feel like height necessarily is particularly important. There's definitely like a, a compulsory height that you have to be. But also if you just think of physical profiles... The number nines in the Premier Leagues now remind me a bit of sort of rugby players in the extent to which they they have to have a certain upper body strength, perhaps more so than being able to jump higher than centre backs. They have to be able to disrupt them, wrestle with them, be able to lever them off the ball and things like that. I mean, it's it's a long list, but I think it's interesting to do this. The strikers and I'm talking about number nine profiles, not wide forwards converted, that have played more than 600 minutes in the Premier League this season. Uh, Ollie Watkins, Dom Solanke. If you just picture the players as I go through them, Nick Jackson, Cameron Archer, Erling Haaland, Carlton Morris and Elijah Adebayo, Odson Edward and Jean-Philippe Mateta, Darwin Nunez, Raul Jimenez, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Callum Wilson, Alexander Isak, Rasmus Hoyland, and Ketia Evan Ferguson, Gabriel Jesus, Lyle Foster, Chris Wood, Mikel Antonio, Neil Mopai, Ollie McBurney, Taiwo Awani, Danny Welbeck, and Beto. There are a few short of stature strikers in there, but broadly, that is a quite a uniform physical profile, isn't it? I guess most of those are playing in single striker systems as well, bar maybe Luton, Sheffield United. I might have missed a couple of teams off there. Um, so if you are playing as as a lone nine, you actually get, and I quite enjoy this now, an awful lot of situations, especially from goal kicks, where you can just play into a nine and they can try and pin the centre-back. Um, and maybe that's more possible because I wonder if... Th- the physicality of the centre-back has maybe dropped off a bit as they become a bit more bit more technical. I, I can't imagine someone like, and I think Fakar tomorrow is like a wonderfully physical player and he's, he's actually really good. His athletic profile is phenomenal when you watch him get pulled wide 1v1, but maybe sort of 10 years ago would probably be boxed out wide to, to a fullback would seem as you know, not big enough sort of thing. It's it's probably the inverse trend of that. So I guess that's where the, the physicality sort of kicks in. And when you do have to play on your own, you need some form of strength because you've not always got someone close to you to, to pass off or the, the little man to play off the flick-ons mm. of, of the big guy, the, the knockdowns. Um, and I guess those smaller players have maybe become the wingers to a degree or, or the central midfielders. And I find it really interesting that, and maybe I'm just misremembering the 90s, but when I think of 90s strikers, early 2000s strikers, I think of poachers and finishers, guys who, to my eyes at that time, were clinical finishers. But that group of strikers that I've just talked through there, I'm wondering really what percentage of them are considered by the average football watcher, the average Premier League fan, as like really clinical, good finishers. Clearly, Haaland, I feel like Callum Wilson is known for being a cool, composed and, and quality finisher. But there's loads of names in there, strikers who play for some of the best teams whose fans quite often think if we had a more clinical striker, we would score more goals. 
And I'll use the example of Ollie Watkins, where an Aston Villa fan who's a friend of mine sat me down the other day to tell me about this amazing Villa team. And he said, I just think if we had a better striker, we'd have even more points if we had someone who, who, who could finish better than Watkins. And I obviously thought that was insane because I think Watkins is an unbelievably important and key player for this fantastic Villa team. And it made me wonder if there's still basically a heightened expectation from the average fan for what a striker should be in, in front of goal, given all the other stuff they're doing. Well, one, I, one thing I think is important is, I mean, you started that by comparing it to the 1990s. I think one thing is that we just consume football in a very different way now. Mm. And people can watch pretty much all of their team's matches week in, week out. Back in the day, if you're a Villa fan, okay, if you go to the matches, it's a different thing. But if you were generally watching at home, you'd maybe get four or five live games a year. The rest of the time, you just see match of the day. You wouldn't see as many misses probably as you do now. So I think just the we have more more to go on, and we see that actually when you when you just clip up highlights, you tend to get extreme examples. Um, and the players we think of in the nineties were probably not as clinical as they were. Yeah. We just didn't see all the missed chances as much. I find Watkins' criticism a bit a bit borderline ridiculous. I think <laughs> um, he's, he's had three Good, seasons. That was my reaction as well. He's had three seasons of ten plus goals in the Premier League. Um, if you include assists within that as well, he's had nineteen goal involvements, thirteen and twenty one last season, and he's already on seventeen this season. He's got nine goals but eight assists as well. I guess a lot of that is being such a good sort of channel runner that he gets in positions where he can play cutbacks or he can sort of set up for for teammates. Um, and that's part of the reason why Villa are so high in the league as they are. And like compare that in the Premier League. No one yet has hit 10 goals and 10 assists. So he could be the first person to do that. There's uh, five other players on 10 plus goals and the closest they're taking 10 assists is Salah and he's on eight and obviously he's going to miss. Um, you expect quite a few of the, the upcoming games with AFCON. Um, so yeah, only Haaland and Salah have been directly involved in more goals, which like, how much better do you realistically want, want this player to be? That I think, um, yeah, people have... Is desensitized the the right word? Just this expectation now of we see a few, um, you know, really elite top level athletes, and I just I don't think it sort of translates into other other sports as well. Where like if I use use an athletics example, when you've got a really top level runner, you don't start expecting everyone else to go. Well, just just run as quickly as Usain Bolt used to. Like it's not it's not always that straightforward. And you look at how packed the box can become, um, how high level goalkeeping has got to. I think even if you look at Haaland, as physical as he can be, and there was great quotes from from Guardiola when um, he said that he didn't know how good uh, Haaland was in small spaces, that he actually scores a lot because he gets into space. He's really attentive. He, if you watch him, he scans a lot and he'll move away. It's a great example uh, in the derby at Old Trafford where uh, I think Guardiola assists him with a dink to the back post and everyone rushes to sort of defend the cutback at the near post and he just peels off to mm. the back. Um, so even he is the, I feel like the example you gave us, the big physical guy that can bully someone is a phenomenal ball striker, hits the ball really hard and really cleanly, and yet still is just really attentive and, and finds space. And that's, I mean, Mark will tell you, one of the biggest predictors of, of goal scoring um, or in terms of making a, a high quality chance of your shot clarity and, and shot pressure. So, I mean, in terms of the numbers, if you look at Ollie Watkins, he's had four, well, three and a half seasons in the Premier League all for Aston Villa. And he's underperformed his XG in, in all of those seasons. So overall... Should have scored 56 goals, has actually got 49. Not, not a huge margin, but in each of the seasons, he's underperformed. If you look at Kai Havertz, who's also had three and a half seasons, he's the same by quite a lot. He's underperformed by 2.3 goals, 2.6 goals, 5.8 goals, and then a little bit underperforming this season. And if you look at Gabriel Jesus, who is in his eighth season, 
in the Premier League, obviously with City. He's also underperformed every season. So not always by a large margin, on one occasion by 0.24, that's pretty much par. But these players are missing more chances than the XG would suggest. I'm glad you brought that up because th- this season, per FB Ref, there is not a single Premier League number nine, the group that I just went through, that's overperforming their expected goals number to a significant degree. There are players who who score goals and do so overperforming their XG this season, in particular, Hyun Son, Jared Bowen, uh, Huang of of Wolves as well. These guys aren't the same profile that we're talking about. But Mark, I mean, that strikes me as mad. You know, XG isn't the be all and end all, but it's a it's a good va- it's a I hope very good measure of the chances that an individual player is having. The idea that none of the strikers at the in the best league in the world would be halfway through the season running really hot in their finishing is absolutely insane to me. Yeah, I think it just reinforces or speaks to the point that I made before that finishing skill, as I say, aside from Lionel Messi, to a certain extent, is not adding that much value onto the chances over and above what is just creating a, a clarity, the clarity of the shot, the location of the shot, the angle. Um, which is the more sustainable things. You, you do have, even the best strikers do run hot, do have patches of form and will over and underperform across the course of a season to create their kind of overall value. So uh, yeah, I, I think if you th- actually think about it, it's not all that surprising. There's a few, like I say, Lionel Messi, but I looked at it since 2018-19. Um, you mentioned Son Heung-min. I think his... You can look at sometimes overperformance or underperformance against XG to a whole host of reasons. Sometimes, as I mentioned in the piece, a bit of bad luck, some really good defending or goalkeeping, and potentially some some good or poor finishing. But Son has overperformed. He scored more than twenty five goals above expectation, yeah. and across the course of multiple seasons since twenty eighteen nineteen, you have to attribute that to just elite finishing with with both feet we we know how good he is with his left and his right so well, that, that's what, many- that's personally one of the things that i feel strongly about is that an ability to shoot with quality with both feet mm-hmm. is still exceptional and rare and will be a, a, a key reason for someone overperforming their xg as you will all know i also have a, a a take which is the physical demands on the number nine in the modern game take so much out of them physically and presumably also mentally, mm-hmm. that it impacts their ability to finish at the end of chances because they have already done so much. Yeah, you must be moving quite an intensity and you're more fatigued, which is going to impact your decision-making. And I wonder if we've got to a point where, I mean, I, I generally think the price of taking any single metric can be really, really reductive, but you then get to a case of, well, in a sort of hypothetical thought experiment, do you want to have a player who's vastly overperforming their XG, but has a low XG and scoring lots of goals, or would you rather someone... And say this on the same number of goals, getting way more chances and not being as clinical and missing more. So an example of this season, if you want to put Nunes up against Kudus, um, Nunes has five goals, Kudus has six, Kudus is four up on his XG, Nunes is almost four down. I know what the data will point to is what the better situation of that is, is to be in, in terms of having more chances. But like bo- both are equally fine as far as I'm concerned. That, that doesn't make Nunes a worse player because you can then say, okay, well, he compensates for if he's not currently being as clinical by getting into better positions. Kudus might just be a better striker of the ball. And neither is really a problem because you're still getting the same. As long as the goal returns okay, I'm like, 
is that not fine for everyone involved? It doesn't mean that, yeah, you could then say, Kudis doesn't get into as good positions. It's that doesn't, that's not a stick to beat someone with. Like it is saying, oh, I'm looking at FB ref, you've got a red by your XG, it's not looking mm. good. Mm. Who am I to criticize analytics, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a really good example of, you know, getting the chances or getting into good positions, but obviously XG being getting into good positions and taking a shot at the end of it. XG is obviously of the shots that do occur. And I think when we're talking about elite number nines or elite finishes, it's not even the ball strike that's actually the thing there of overperforming against your XG in terms of a good finish. But you mentioned Ollie Watkins before. I do think he can be frustrating at times in maybe his lack of movement, that kind of instinct to maybe peel off onto the back post or to, to expect a ball to drop in a certain weight that he's not had a shot so that's not logged in the data We've spoken before about you know the event data being things that actually do happen i think sometimes when you're th talking about an elite finisher an elite striker it's all the stuff that maybe doesn't happen getting into that same position multiple times and then trying to expect the ball to, to drop that way and actually michael i actually thought of the gary lineker my game in my words that, that you did with him speaking about how the fact that he was like you know you make that same run 20 times that 19 times it might not come off but the 20th time is is knowing that you expect the ball to drop in a certain place that that's that's the the hard work not the actual finish itself and i think that's quite pertinent here as well so that's not really a technical skill is it yeah. that is a, a pure mentality football that is intelligence a, that is an in, a mental skill well i think overall i'd like us to all go easy on strikers a little more i mean i think it's it's worth saying before we wrap up that we come at these conversations necessarily from hopefully an objective angle and an analytical angle, whatever the case may be. But of course, the emotional side of football is is what makes it amazing. And, and I do think that strikers getting stick for missing chances in what I would consider quite an unfair way, you know, it's it comes back to, for me, a sort of cognitive bias that's I guess maybe adjacent to loss aversion or something like that, where the the pain of missed chances that that you are ready to celebrate, that you that you really want and need to go in, is almost more powerful and memorable than the the pleasure of the goals that get scored. I think that's an issue for certain strikers, uh, and I also think there's probably an issue where again it is not natural for a fan, let's say, of a team whose striker is massively overperforming on a hot streak. To, to ground themselves by saying, I understand they are finishing at an above average rate <laughs> and it is unlikely to be sustained over a long period of time. Broadly, you just want to celebrate the player being incredible and your manager being a genius and everything being amazing. I'd say football fans are actually excellent at living in the moment in that regard about being like, we don't generally care about what this might mean. And rightly so, because that's, I think I can't speak for everyone in the room, but that's why I got into sport because it's good fun when those things happen. That's what everyone comes there for. And that's the human side of it that maybe gets lost a little bit, I suppose, when you when you do start sort of crunching the numbers and, and getting very analytical. I wonder if part of this becoming a stick to beat strikers with him in particular is, and this is some data I got from the CIS football um those big group. observers of those football. big observers up there at the top of the mountain in their observatory <laughs> that's that's how i imagine it anyway um the proportion has come down a tiny bit but the amount of transfer fees or the proportion overall that gets spent on forwards is still about 50% um so you look at clubs around the, and this is around the world i think spending as much on every other position combined as forwards because people still pay for goals it's if it's football's currency so i suppose when you've got someone like Bowen, Son, Huang now are, are difficult examples because they've kind of had repurposed roles or they play a bit more fluidly and interchangeably. But 
it almost feels a bit like a luxury when you get a, a goal scoring midfielder or a 10 or a winger and you're like, it's not your primary sort of remit or historically, but it's always a thing of, well, number nine's always did this, so they always should. And then you're also like, if you're spending that amount of money on a player, well, I kind of need you to do the one thing mm. to win the game, to recoup that money. Um, so I guess that that just comes into it. That, sorry, that just reminds me of, uh, I think is Harry Redknapp maybe saying that a player wanted a scoring bonus added to his contract, uh, a striker. And he's like, well, what do you expect? What did we buy you for? <laughs> the whole point is that we're trying to get you to score goals. A really, really interesting, guys. Thank you for, for answering some of my questions there. I, I've been really thinking a lot about this over the last week, in particular, off the back of Mark's excellent article about Arsenal. I mean, one name we haven't mentioned, Timo Werner. Hmm. He's back in the Premier League and I feel like some discourse around Werner is probably relevant to this topic of conversation as well. I'm sure we'll talk about him uh, and some others over the next few weeks. Uh, join us every week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in 2024. We're really looking forward to a, a good year ahead. We've got um, so much to look forward to in the 23-24 season as it reaches its conclusion, but also major tournaments in the summer uh, and beyond as well. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed and to The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com slash tactics to sign up today and join us next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. <laughs>